Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Dr. Sarah Colley, Associate Vice President of Organizational Excellence at the University of Virginia. In this role, she partners with the university community to develop and execute strategy, design, and implement improvements to foster a culture of innovation and change. Sarah's work has been recognized with several awards, including the NCCI Leader of Change Award and the Gold Facilitation Impact Award from the IAF. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Uh, thank you, Douglas. Thanks for hosting me. It's, it's really a pleasure to be with you. So as usual, I'd like to start off with a little bit about how you got your start in this work. It's really amazing to talk to someone who is receiving awards from the International Association of Facilitators and is just at the peak of what it is to impact change in organizations. And there isn't a straight path there always. It's generally a circuitous journey. And so really curious to see how you made your journey to this kind of pinnacle facilitator. Yes, I think the, the term journey is a, is a really accurate one. And it's been progressive in nature and one that was probably with me and in me for a long time. I, I just didn't realize it, nor did I characterize it as, as facilitation. I'm a lifelong educator, and so I have experiences in, in teaching and coaching and administration. I've worked at all levels from elementary school to college, and honestly, they're, they're more similar than different. But the majority of my career has, in fact, been in, in higher education. So if I look way back to my teacher preparation studies, I think I learned a teaching style that was very facilitative in approach. And I learned some key facilitation skills in my teacher prep background. Things such as, you know, starting with a stated objective. How do you organize and engage groups? How do you elicit certain, certain outcomes? And so I was relying upon these facilitation techniques. I, I just didn't call them that or know that's really what they were. Sometimes in education, you hear the term active learning. I think there's some similarities. They're not exactly the same, but some similar principles and concepts. So the arc of my career then took me into administrative roles, and I was, I was able to transfer and apply some of those facilitative techniques and approaches, but honestly, in a limited basis. There are strong sort of cultural and status quo pulls to how meetings are run. And so uh, I, I won't say that I, I brought those facilitative techniques and wholesale over to the administrative context. 
It was really when uh, I was pursuing my doctorate in higher education administration when I became interested in, in studying organizations, uh, studying organizational culture, organizational performance, uh, organizational effectiveness, you know, got, got turned on to the works of people like Peter Singe and mm. Edgar Schein. It, it's, it's when I made this shift in my career to one that was much more focused on improvement and innovation and change but I would say facilitation took much more of a, a center stage uh, in, my, in my daily life. Many of those methodologies have sort of facilitation embedded in them. And so it was a, a toolkit and a skill that I, I've just started to build out and continue to grow. So that's my, that's my journey. Uh, facilitation now is a part of my everyday, everyday life. One comment I would make, however, and I hope it won't be too controversial as we start this podcast, and, and that's that I actually don't describe myself as a facilitator. I, I don't use that, that term or that label. And, and I realize it's probably all in the, the semantics and the, and the definitions of the word. But I see facilitation as, as, a, as a toolkit that I use to achieve you know, other outcomes, other organizational outcomes, whether they be strategic planning, process improvement, engaging, uh, you know, and creating a healthy, productive culture. So, you know, facilitation is a, a means rather than an end. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my approach to facilitation. So I want to come back to some of the stuff you were talking about as far as, you know, teacher training and how that prepped you for this facilitation work or, or you know, maybe they didn't have the same language or the same, uh, they didn't refer to them in the same ways. And Specifically, something that we've thought a lot about is this kind of connection between facilitating groups to a desired result and training, meaning that when we're, we're looking at a lot of these training or learning types of tools and frameworks and approaches, just learning science in general and, and, and workshops and meetings, uh, the similarities get, uh, are very apparent. And, and the more we thought about it, it was like, well, uh, meeting participants are learners. Because they have to show up and learn something, if it's a, whether it's an innovation or whether it's a new strategy. They're hearing new ideas from their coworkers that they have to assimilate, integrate, and then uh, and then do something with. And so that when that when I made that realization, it made that connection between education and meetings and workshops and facilitation so clear. And so it's really fascinating that you went through this journey. And then as you started to see these tools, saw the similarities. So I'd love to unpack that a little more with you. Yeah, I think it really comes back to that there's a spectrum of teaching styles. And there's maybe the more traditional, historical style of command style and sage on stage, all the way to sort of the self-discovery. And it, it appears to me that, you know, facilitation is really in that middle space mm. and in that middle space between the command style and the, the self-discovery. And it really allows you to unleash the collective, right? Learn, learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and what better way to learn than to learn with others? And I think that's really what facilitation is about, is about unleashing the collective power of a group. Yeah. So, so Douglas, let's let's stay with this um, connection between education and facilitation for for a moment, because I think what's central to both of them is is learning. And if you think about 
education, education is probably is more focused on individual learning, while of course there's some residual learning from being with others. For the most part, education is focused on learning at an individual level. But if you think about facilitation, facilitation is also about learning, but learning at an organizational level. So facilitation really enables organizational learning through groups of people. I'm pretty fond of saying, you know, all the work of organizations is, is done by people. So then it would, it would sort of follow that all organizational learning uh, has to take place through people collectively. So I do see a really strong connection to both education and facilitation. And in some ways, you might think of, you know, individual learning and organizational learning as sort of two sides of the same coin. And you need both. I love that. We often talk about this idea that designing workshops and designing learning experiences are pretty much one and the same. And we apply a lot of learning experience design principles to our workshop design framework. And so it's really interesting to hear about this notion of individual versus group learning. That's really cool. Yeah, we have a professor at UVA who talks about uh, the world of hyperlearning. So Ed Hess, with the, the fast pace and changing world, speaks of hyperlearning, which captures this notion that you can learn with yourself and learn with others, and it needs to be continual in this fast-paced world to, to adapt to the speed of change. And if someone were to, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks find facilitation through design or through specific tools and methodologies and are just starting to get curious, approaching this journey from a different perspective. And so as someone who has a deep experience in learning and various teaching and um, training styles, what's something that you might suggest that people check out or keep in mind as they're thinking about maybe applying these kind of learning principles to their work? We know I've learned a great deal from Keith McCandless in Liberating mm. Structures. And, and I think his framework and approach can be adapted by anyone and applied by anyone, that you, you don't have to be a professional facilitator. And so I, I find that ease of his structures and his approach to be really helpful. It, it, it brings intentionality to facilitation, and I think that's where you have to start. Otherwise, it's just a tool. It's kind of like technology is a tool, and if you think technology is going to serve, is going to solve a service improvement you have, well, it may not. It may, in fact, make it worse if you don't effectively design and deploy it. Uh, and I think that's true about facilitation, right? It's much more than just getting people in a room and having them talk. So I think his, his framework really brings intentionality. And I think the most critical place to start is getting clear on the purpose of mm. any given session. I go so far as to even write out a purpose statement to make sure that I have clarity about what the group I'm working with wishes to achieve in our time together. I think that's why that dialogue with who you're working with is so important up front uh, to be sure that you have alignment because you can't go to designing a session if you're not crystal clear on the purpose. And they may not even be clear on the purpose, which is why you need to have a conversation. Don't ask them to fill out a form and submit it to you. But the powers in the dialogue to dig in and understand what are you trying to do in this session or series of sessions. 
And so how are you typically having those dialogues? What's your kind of go-to approach to kind of distill that purpose? Yeah, you know, certainly a lot of lot of listening. Some people will be able to answer the question, you know, what do you want to achieve? Many people will be more rambling around purpose. And so I think asking questions around what does success look like, you know, just mm. asking questions of curiosity, questions inquiring, uh, what does great look like during the session? Uh, so sort of lead them there. And then I try to take that, craft some language, a couple of bullet points and share it back with them to say, did, did I hear you? You know, have, this is what I heard you say. Uh, if we achieve this, if it's written in an outcome outcome statement, if we achieve this by the end of this meeting, this session, this series of sessions, you know, is, is that what you uh, hope to achieve? Yeah, it's always nice to start off with purpose. And I find it to be lacking quite often. And um, even when there's a a focus put on it, people can struggle with it because it sounds so simple, but sometimes it can be hard to articulate, especially if there's a lot of jargon or a lot of, um, you know, just here's the project brief. And we just kind of keep coming back to that language. People aren't getting to like, what is the, what's the root of of what's driving this? Uh, I'm curious if you've run into that before. Yes. And I have to go back to Priya Parker. Priya Parker said something very clear on this point. Uh, She emphasized that we assume that the purpose is known and shared when we gather. And the reality is that that it isn't. I don't know about you, but I go to plenty of meetings where it's really not clear to me what the purpose or what my role is as an attendee. Am I there to, to, to provide ideas? Am I there to provide feedback? Am I there to ask questions of clarification? So what happens a lot of the time is the participants will remain passive and quiet because the purpose isn't clear, nor is their role. You know, I think that's like spot on. And in our book, Magical Meetings, we talk about the the need to not only can you clarify your purpose as far as like writing it down and what it is, but if you don't communicate it you and you don't clarify it to your participants, then you haven't gone far enough, right? And to that point, I think it is uh, important to even rename our meetings. So often our calendars are full of stuff and it's like, I don't even know what this is, right? So can their names at least give us a hint on our purpose or take us there? Yes. And often that's all you have to go on. There is no agenda. It's just, here's the name of the meeting. Show up. Mm -hmm. And my experience is many, many meetings, probably some 90%, are sort of what I'll classify as the traditional talk app meeting, right? The convener, the leader, the presenter will talk at using up, you know, probably 55 minutes of a 60 minute time period. Maybe at the very end, ask if there are any questions. Sometimes they'll have a very dense PowerPoint to go with it and they'll read those PowerPoint slides to you. And I I see some meetings where they're sending out the information in advance, which I think is a wonderful way to set expectations about what the meeting's about, the kind of information that'll be conveyed. However, don't then come in and read the PowerPoint Mm. because you've now conditioned people to not do any pre-work, to do any pre-thinking, to come prepared for a dialogue, right? We've conditioned them to expect, oh, I will come and be a passive uh, participant in this in this meeting. Yeah, it's interesting this notion of being passive versus something you said earlier around unleashing the collective. And I'd already scribbled that down because I was going to take us back to liberating structures. And you already mentioned Keith. I'm I'm also a huge fan of his work, and 
I think the framework's fantastic for, I mean, to your point, anyone can be a facilitator and that's part of the allure. It's like, what a great way to unleash everyone if now everyone's empowered to be part of the unleashing. I'd like to dig into your experience with liberating structures. I know that there's some case studies that got that got released about your work using liberating structures with the community there, and I believe it was there in, in, in Charlottesville. We'd love to hear more about that and how you found it to be effective and anything that listeners might find helpful. Sure. Well, liberating structures, as, as we've already stated, are just a wonderful way to really tap into the collective wisdom of a group. And my sort of core starting principle is if you're bringing a group of people together, don't you want to leverage the talent, the expertise, the knowledge, everything they bring? That's the power of having a group together. Otherwise, you you just have the one plus one, right? An individual plus an individual plus an individual and, and the limitations that come with the way we, we all think. And I think better with, with others. Um, and I believe others think better with others. You know, Keith has a set of sort of principles and uh, he, he helps you understand sort of the micro-organizing design elements of, of every meeting. Um, and again, I think anyone can, can use those. From his work, I've, I've adopted, I would say, sort of four really core guiding principles for every facilitation I do. And that is, I want to engage everyone that shows up. Uh, I want to be sure I can tap into diverse perspectives that are in the room. I want to create conditions to promote cross-pollination. And the last one is focus on forward-looking, positive conversations. Now, it doesn't mean you sort of ignore the past, but we have to get past the past, right? And we have to learn from the past, use it constructively, so we can focus on sort of moving forward. And those, those are really the four, four design elements I use over and over and over. Mm. And when I'm working with a group, I actually share that with whoever I'm working with to co-design, because I do believe it is a, a co-design, even though I may do the first design and, and get some refinement from them. I share those principles back with them so, so they can see how those principles show up in the actual design of the session. Yeah, that's a total power move as a facilitator. Well, meaning that when you do that, it's inclusive. It also means that they understand the mindset behind some of these moves. And then it uh, you start to really get contributions that you wouldn't have got otherwise, right? Because it starts to click for them. They go, oh, okay, that's how I can contribute. So I'm a big fan of that. Plus, like if you get a if you get a buy-in and agreement on the on the principles, then it's a lot easier when people gravitate to some of their old behaviors, we can point back to the principles, right? And so it's not the behavior we're challenging. It's like, didn't we say we were going to do this? Right, right. That's so good. It's interesting. You mentioned these key skills that kind of jumped out earlier and there was a structured objectives, the organize and engage, and then elicit these kind of outcomes or these contributions. And the structured objective, I think, is from my perspective, is pretty similar to the purpose, but a little different. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit with you. Well, I think there's probably an overall purpose, more of an umbrella purpose to any given session or series of sessions. 
and then you can zoom in into um, uh, you know a, an individual session or even part of a session. What is the objective you're trying to achieve in this session or in this section of a meeting? You know, is it ideation? Is it planning? Is it prioritization? Is it getting to action steps? So just being really, really intentional about why you're doing what you're doing. I'm going to come back to, to Priya Parker only because she's sort of been top of mind lately as, as she's out there uh, quite prominent these days. You know, I love the way she also talks about openings and the mm -hmm. importance of how you open a meeting and open a session. And I think openings and closings are probably one of the most neglected areas of meeting facilitation. People, even on Zoom, or they come in the room and they're sitting, they're quiet, or some people are talking and others are sitting there doing nothing. And, you know, it often starts with someone speaking to the group. And so I would just ask people to be very mindful about what do you want to accomplish in those first opening moments? Is it engagement? Is it connection? Is it being present? And, and I think you want to do that in the context of the meeting. Mm. Uh, it, it's... It's often maddening for me when I hear people take valuable time or see people take valuable time at the beginning of a meeting for a really sort of disconnected, irrelevant, maybe icebreaker. <laughs> what color M&Ms do you like, right? Yeah. Maybe that'll get people connected. But, but I think you have a, a, an opportunity to get people present, focused, in those early moments and, and do it with, again, intentionality and aligned with the purpose. And this is the comment Priya made that I, I thought was so, so well said is, you know, an opening should connect people to purpose and each other. I just think that's beautiful. Yeah, 100%. And to your point around intentionality, so many times people will throw icebreakers around because they think, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's like a prescriptive this is how you open. And sure, that shows up in a lot of openings, but if we don't get down to the reason, the why that's there, we're not going to get the most out of our experience, right? And I always love to tell people when we're doing facilitator training, we'll say, if you run an icebreaker, a warm-up, or any sort of activity that's transitioning or, or, or setting folks up for the next step, and you turn to the group after running that session or that activity and you say, why did we just do that? And it doesn't erupt into a pithy conversation. And you need to ask yourself, why did we just do that? Yes. And so going back to Keith McCandless and Liberating Structures, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with impromptu networking mm -hmm. and use it regularly to open meetings. Uh, and in my world, you know, you would rarely call a facilitation structure by its name. You just you just give them the, the, the instructions, uh, give them a prompt, a question, and, and off they go. It's a great way to have high energy, connect with your purpose, you know, spend some time thinking about what the question is. So it's really, again, intentional and aligned with your purpose, but great way to bring connection, engagement, purpose, bring people present. People are going mm -hmm. from meeting to meeting to meeting. They enter the meeting and they've sort of got to get reset. They're, they're maybe reflecting upon what they just heard in the last meeting. So get them present quickly. It's so good. Yeah, I, it's, I run into that so often. You know, it's like people running from meeting to meeting and they just kind of frantically show up. And, you know, I haven't actually measured this, but I, I bet you could study what is the average time it takes people to actually transition 
into whatever you're discussing because people are just going back to back to back and it takes time. I, I call it the boot up time. And if we don't account for that, and to your point, the opener is a great time. You know, we should be planning on that in the opener. But so many times I see people just cutting right into the, the content or right into the discussion. And it's like, man, no one's had time to even even get there. Agreed. Do you have any stories you could share about openers you've done that you thought were really effective and, and maybe what made them effective and how you were intentional about how you opened? I think openers that are, are very personal meaning you're asking them to share a time when Mm. XXX or imagine you are somewhere. I mean, I think it really starts with them. Who doesn't like to share about their own experiences or their own observations or talk about them Mm -hmm. and, and connect it to purpose? I think those are the most powerful ways to start. So thinking a bit about the next kind of key skill, which is to organize and engage. So, you know, we talked a little bit about liberating structures. They're great for creating engagement. What are some of your other moves or some examples of ways that you've, you've created more engagement? Well, I think there are many methodologies and facilitation tools that, that just have engagement embedded in them. So increasing engagement, I think there are probably two elements I'd emphasize. One is the way you set it up, right? The the structure itself to ensure, the organizational structure, to ensure Mm -hmm. that everyone has an opportunity to participate, right? We all know groups can have dominant voices. So set it up so everyone has a chance. And that may be including everything from how you, you know, whether it's starting off with some individual reflection, because some people are more processors, using pairs or trios, small groups, but I would emphasize small groups to ensure that everyone has a voice. And there are ways then to come back as a whole and cross-pollinate across across groups as well. So everyone, again, is, is getting the benefit of, of the collective input and the collective wisdom. So I think, I think how you physically organize and, and how you uh, create your groups have a tremendous bearing upon the amount of engagement. So you mentioned that we often have to deal with dominant voices, thinking about how we structure, how we group folks, keeping small groups together and how the conversation can flow between individual to the small groups, the big groups and back and forth. Some people talk about W's or zigzags where you're kind of going up and down the small group, large group. I want to just get uh, maybe a story or maybe some advice around what happens when, you know, you've got some structure, you've been planning on it, but there's just some disruption in the room. Maybe that dominant voice is just finding its way in or the participation's not there. Maybe there's some psychological safety that's like absent. Uh, what are some of your go-to moves in the moment that you may, maybe you didn't even anticipate it, so you couldn't couldn't plan for it. But what are some of your go tos to to help get the team on track and help like get everyone contributing? That's a really important point because while I, I do emphasize the intentionality and the planning, there are certainly always elements of any meeting or session that are unknown, right? And you may have to deal with them in the moment. You know, if you've done that planning well, I, I think you do uh, mitigate some of this because you've you flatten 
the power in the room, right? The hierarchy in the room. The leader is not sage on stage. I usually try to speak to the leader in advance and ask them to be a full participant. They are not there to espouse their viewpoints and have everyone align behind them in most, in most cases if it's a true group facilitation. So I think there are things you can really intentionally do in advance to, to help mitigate. But nonetheless, it, it's going to happen. And I think the structures will help you because you don't want to stay in one structure too long, right? Where it can escalate and get amplified. I, I think limiting whole group interaction is another way to mitigate that. Redirecting, you know, even if, even if you come back and you ask people to share, uh, you can qualify it, right? What is something you heard that everyone in the room must hear, right? That's another Keith McCandless mm. one, right? Not just come back and to give me a report out of everything in your group, right? But something truly spectacular, extraordinary. So you're, you're helping them have some self-management of self, right? Self-manage how they interact. I think being uh, redirecting is just an important part of facilitation, right? If someone is going too long, can you summarize that point so they feel heard and you know move on to, to the next activity or next part of the session? That's all really great advice. You know, and it, you know, focusing on the engagement is 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 so vital. And I see especially a lot of new facilitators, it's easy to throw in the towel and go, oh well. That's just culturally how it is here. Um, and it's so worth the effort to lean in to the conflict. And I think it's the conflict where the lack of engagement tends to suffer. For instance, if the leader speaks very firmly around, well, we can't do that, or, or just shut something down, then all of a sudden engagement you know, just will, will stifle or whatever. And I think leaning into that and inviting a dialogue around it is scary for a new facilitator, but the more you do it, the more you will keep that engagement high. And, and you, you're going to have to adapt. You know, you may have planned an activity for X amount of minutes and you, you realize you, you didn't get maybe the, the results you had hoped for. So you refine it a little bit and you send them back and have them repeat it. Or you drop an entire activity in the moment. Or I've been in a situation where I, I was given some strong feedback that they didn't feel like they had heard enough from, uh, I'll qualify it as the user voice uh, in a facilitation session. So, you know, I reflected upon that. I took a step back, and this happened to be a multi-session facilitation. I took a step back, and the very next session, I uh, organized what's called a, a fishbowl. So they could hear from the users this particular program was serving. I garnered the respect of the participants. They gathered more context and information that they needed, but it wasn't in the original design. So I, I actually appreciated that they had the, as you described, psychological safety to, to offer um, a suggestion I didn't let them tell me how to do it necessarily. Um, I think we have to be careful in that space. I love it when people show up and say, we want you to facilitate this. And these are the activities we want you to do. And this is the time frame. We've already described that it's going to be 75 minutes or it's going to be three hours. And can you do it? And so, you know, I, I want to be 
careful that we're not giving them all the power, but you, you do want to be responsive and listen to what the needs of the group are and adapt. That's right. And, you know, it's funny how I see facilitators that understand that inquiry and active listening and, you know, just being curious is kind of the cornerstone to good facilitation. And yet, so the, and they get that in the session with their participants. But then when it comes to feedback on like shifting the structure or the, the activities or the agenda, they're very protective because it's their baby. It's what they created, right? But if we're practicing those same skills of inquiry and active listening, we should be willing to adapt it. And, and at the end of the day, to your point, we are here to, to for, an, for a purpose. There's a stated objective we're trying to get to. And, and I guarantee you that objective is not run these 10 activities. Exactly, exactly. So when I think about a, a multi-session engagement, I mean, I have a skeleton plan and we're starting here and I want to get there. And perhaps I think it's probably going to be three or four sessions. And, and I have a skeleton plan. But I honestly do not put the details around session two, session three, until I've had the prior session and, and see where the group is. And I have the luxury in, in my work of also adapting in the sense that I may think it's going to be a two or three session engagement, but if I need to, I can make it a five or six session uh, engagement. So I have that kind of flexibility, which is helpful to, to make those adaptive moves instead of feeling like it's a linear process and, you know, we have to, you know, these milestones have to be hit. It, it's, it, I think it also yields, you know, it yields better outcomes. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I want to shift to the key skill number three that you mentioned, which was eliciting these outcomes. And I think that's pretty critical because if we don't, uh, if we don't get to deliverables, if we don't know what done looks like, if we haven't understood that in our, in our pre-work or our discovery call or whatever we want to call it. A, we, we have no map to reference against. We don't know when we're there. And, uh, and also no one experiences any business value. It's like, oh, we just had a lovely chat, but it's like one of those things where, where people are like, oh, these workshops, they're just kind of like flash in the pan. So this is one that's very important for me. And I love that you, it's one of your three core kind of focus areas or key skills. Tell me a little bit more about how you think about eliciting outcomes and just how you get there and what's some good principles to follow. When I think about eliciting, um, I, I actually come at it from two levels, uh, a sort of a micro level and a macro level. So at the, the micro level, you know, I, I think the eliciting comes from the structure and the prompt, and it may not always be a very direct question, right? You may have to use imagery or use stories to uncover whatever it is you're working on, whether that be, you know, whether that be ideation or solutions. So eliciting sort of at the micro level. And then when I think about eliciting at the, the macro level, I don't know about you, but I've worked with many, many groups or been a participant in where there's lots of ideation and then nothing happens, right? There's no no lack of ideas, but there's a lack of sort of ex execution and a lack of commitment. Mm -hmm. So how how can we elicit 
commitment, <laughs> and action. And so I, I don't like to leave groups without, you know, I may not be able to stay with them all the way through implementation, but I can help position those groups to take the first steps and, and hopefully toward a, you know, a successful outcome. Um, you know, way, ways that we, we might do that is um, if they have lots of ideas, helping them, you know, prioritize them, selecting a few, understanding the context that they, they may be executing those in, and then really getting down to articulating what would be the first steps, who would do it, but let's even go one step further around what are you going to do, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> right? So people, people, you want a commitment and accountability. It may be easy to create the plan and say someone who's not even in the room is, is going to execute on these steps. So let's have them take ownership of what they're going to do and what they're going to commit to and, 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 do, and commit to that in front of the group, with the group, and have some mechanisms of accountability in place as well. 15% solutions is one yes. of my favorite closers. Yeah. Yes, that's it. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just so spot on. It's like, and I love this, like, you're, you're thinking of the, the micro, the macro, because if we don't think about how this fits in to a continuum, then uh, the, the work could easily just kind of evaporate or, or just lose momentum. So it's important to think about how things take root. There's a really awesome book called The Messy Middle, which is like talks about like, oh, it's really easy when, when things are just getting started because it's fun to ideate and figure out like where we're going to go. And it's really fun when products are ending because it's like the end's in sight and things are, you're putting all the finishing touches on stuff and you're getting it out the door and, and there's, there's launch parties and everyone's having cheese and crackers, whatever. But that messy middle, man, there's so much, especially if we're in a, anything that might resemble a complex environment, there's so much emergent stuff that we didn't understand and we just got to be able to adapt and, and deal. So I love this idea of like, you know, whether you can stick around for a little bit as they start to veer into what might be the messy middle or at least like shine a light on the fact that it's coming. The commitments really help with that because if they've got ownership, then they, they're going to stick through it versus saying, oh, Susan will figure it out. So thinking about this macro and the organizational development and change work that you do, what's maybe a story that you could share that kind of highlights some of that work and how you think about the macro and helping people in that longer journey? Yeah. So in terms of some examples, let me let me just start by providing a, a little bit of uh, background about our program, because uh, I think it'll situate the examples. So UVA Organizational Excellence Program is a, a resource and a partner for the university community. And we offer sort of a, a suite of core services around strategic and operational planning, process and service improvements, organizational effectiveness, project management, and navigating organizational change. And so in the course of our work, we apply an array of improvement, innovation, and change methodologies and tools so we don't subscribe to just, just one singular approach. And I, I raise that because then we also integrate facilitation with those approaches. And I would even go so far to, to offer that facilitation actually enhances many of those methodologies. So whether we're using design thinking or appreciative inquiry, 
we're doing value stream process mapping or using change management, strategic doing. So regardless of the methodology or tool, then we add in uh, facilitation. Some of them have it embedded in them, but in many cases, uh, we're, we're sort of adding on additional facilitation techniques. So you asked me about specifically about uh, some of the work we've done. Uh, there was one in particular recently that was recognized, an initiative called Project Rebound, where we partnered with the, the local region and the local businesses to, to really come together and uh, launch plans for their economic recovery in the wake of, of COVID. And so that, that project, uh, we, we convened more than probably 300 plus stakeholders in industry-specific committees, uh, as well as general community sessions to, to gather input, to help them sort through and prioritize ideas that would lead to actionable strategies and, and actually be a blueprint for reopening and revitalizing the local economy. So it was, it was uh, you know, it was a crisis moment for many of these businesses. And, uh, you know, facilitation really brought out the best of people, really brought out that collective community power, even amid these challenges. And uh, they were really able to come together, be forward-looking, uh, create a plan. But beyond that, they actually created a support network for one another. Uh, almost everybody spoke about making new connections that would be long-lasting. And in fact, uh, one, one of the goals of the project was to foster more ongoing collaboration that would go on long after uh, the recovery period from COVID. So it was just a really meaningful and impactful project. And at the simplest level, what we did was uh, create the space, create very intentional space for people to, to gather and engage and, and, and share in a productive way. You know, I'll, I'll speak just, I'll be much shorter here and just give you a couple other examples. But, you know, we, we're engaged with various process and service improvements um, and facilitation is embedded throughout the effort. So the early stage of, you know, discovery, what's the current state, imagining the future, what's possible, designing how we get to that, that future state. And then even after implementation, you know, collecting feedback and uh, further refining the process or the service. Uh, facilitation is embedded throughout. Some recent things we've worked on include, you know, our capital construction building process, um, hiring processes, enhancing support for research. Even in the academic space, we have uh, a partnership with our Center for Teaching Excellence to, to work with academic departments and schools on curriculum redesign. And so while the center brings the expertise around curriculum content to, to help ensure that it's relevant and aligned with the desired student learning outcomes, uh, you know, we're bringing in knowledge and, and techniques to, to engage all the faculty, to be very inclusive, and to really help the department navigate uh, organizational change successfully. So there, while there are many examples I could give in strategic planning, organizational effectiveness, uh, I guess the final point here would be that facilitation really knows no boundaries. It's, it's applicable to all functional areas. It's applicable to all constituencies. Uh, in our case, faculty, staff, students, alumni, even, even partners of the university. So it just pairs well with other methodologies and tools, and it, and it pairs well with, with all audiences and, and groups. I couldn't agree more that, especially in complex environments, 
facilitation is a prerequisite for leadership. Leaders aren't doing these things. They're leaving so much potential behind and potentially, I would say, operating on a high level of risk. Yes. I mean, leaders have the responsibility, right, to create the conditions where people can come together and and thrive and, and do their very best work. And I don't know how you do that if you aren't using some facilitative skills along the way. Wow. Yeah. I think that statement is such a powerful statement. I'd I'd love to end there. And so I want to transition to this moment here at the end to to just give you a chance to share your final thought with our listener. Yes. Well, I think I would just build upon that facilitation is leadership. And leadership has a commitment to help groups be the best they can be. And I don't know how you do that if you aren't using facilitation. You know, there's a saying in the improvement and quality world where, where I work about organizations and systems deliver the, the exact results that they're designed to get. And so I would encourage everyone to look at their meetings as well. And your meetings and your sessions are delivering the exact results that you've designed them to deliver. So that means if you don't have engagement, you probably design the session like that. So as leaders, let's all go back, look at our day-to-day interactions, take a critical eye towards our meetings and our sessions, and consider how we might alter the design and get different results rather than continuing to do the same thing over and over uh, and expecting different results. I'll end with this final quote that that I have on my desk. This is my call to action for all leaders. An organization's results are determined through webs of human commitments, born in webs of human conversation. Fernando Flores. That's so lovely. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me and sharing that lovely quote at the end. And uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today and I hope you all the best. Thanks, Douglas. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com